Hello and welcome to the Mad Band Downright Strange Showcase. I'm your host as always, Edward Jones of From the Depths of DVD Hell. And on tonight's show we are going to be looking at Alex Cox's exciting punk rock influenced debut, Repo Man. And to join me on this wild ride through the streets of 80s LA is the one and only Greg from the, formerly of the Debatable Podcast and now... I mean, how can we put this, Greg? I mean, you're sort of out in the wilds, really. Now it's I am. I'm I'm free agent. I'm uh, I'm out here just uh, writing and, and looking at uh, what the next uh, phase is going to be, man. I'm not I'm not uh, necessarily doing my uh, my podcast anymore. My uh, debatable podcast, my show that I was doing for um, over five years, over over six years. But um, yeah, man, I'm just. Just uh, falling back a little bit and trying to reevaluate what the next thing is and, and focus on writing. Because, I mean, it's been a while since we were on last. I mean, obviously the show's been a while for a while and we're now back finally yep. after that. A little bit of a break to go off and, you know, build other shows and concentrate on other projects. And we're now right. here dusting off the equipment and, you know, getting back into the flow of tackling the, the list. And when it was sort of like looking at the films to obviously wanted to discuss i think repo man was the one that sort of like stood out instantly not only because of the yeah. fact i hadn't seen it but it was sort of like in my mind it was all like i want to talk about repo man and i want to get greg on to talk about it and wonderfully everything just came together for this absolutely show, so. um, and it's a, it's a great movie to jump off with because i mean like you said it's a it's a classic it's a cult classic and i think that uh man it, it, there there are a few movies that that fit your uh your brand um, more than this movie, it's just it's perfect in every way. Oh, definitely. I mean, for some reason, for some reason, I always knew of Repo Man, but I never actually got around to seeing it for whatever reason. It just always sat there in sort of the watch pile. And right. I mean, as I said, this is my first taste of the work of Alex Cox. Alex Cox, I don't know if you yourselves over in the states, but over here in the UK, he's kind of like a very much a a multi-pronged attack because he's not only known for his work as a director but he also hosted a late night uh film show called movie drum here in the uk and right it was sort of like basically it was a kind of like um i'm trying to think of the american equivalent i think the like late night tcm or right one of those right. sort of channels where he would just basically provide introductions for sort of like cult and obscure movies and he was like the guy responsible for introducing a lot of like the B movies like Man with X ray eyes. Um he'd provided introductions for films like The Terminator and uh, The Wild Bunch and it was for a lot of people it was their first sort of taste of these movies. It, I mean these is this is right. pre internet days back in sort right. of like the late eighties, early nineties. So the only way you would find out about a lot of films would be if you were sort of like reading the reading the sort of trade papers or if you're sort of word of mouth really and and there's people uh such as the i don't know if his name director of baby driver um oh edgar wright mm -hmm. yeah there's people like edgar wright who just sort of like say that it's because of movie drum they got into filmmaking so he's got he's got this very bizarre sort of cult reputation not only as i said as a director but also as this host of movie drums so it's kind of a kind of interesting obviously just diving in here the first film he ever made uh back in 1984 and i mean have you got a lot of experience with cox's work as a director or that that's an interesting thing because uh you know as a director i think probably repo man was the first thing of his that i saw 
And I've only seen probably a handful of other movies uh, of his. I, I don't know his um, his uh, catalog uh, in and out. Um, I know obviously said Nancy. I've seen Walker. I've not. I haven't seen uh, Straight to Hell. Um, but you know, Alex Cox uh, too. I think that I came at him from being kind of a, a similar soul, being simpatico with him because, you know, I got turned on to him too by blog posts, by um, uh, papers that he wrote that got, you know, funneled to the internet. Uh, I'm thinking of the stuff that he, he's written on uh, spaghetti westerns and, and yeah. one of my favorite filmmakers, uh, uh, Kurosawa. But um, through books and through, you know, kind of seeing how, uh, you know, he, he turned people on to, to, um, lesser known spaghetti westerns through through those kind of blog posts and those papers those are the things that i kind of uh know alex cox for the best and i mean um recently i was thinking what has he been most prevalent to in my mind and and he has been doing these like little uh extra features these little uh featurettes on um on the Kino Lorber discs for um, Good, Bad, and the Ugly, and for a few dollars more recently that I watched, and Fistful of Dollars. And he's kind of like been uh, kind of a guide through those uh, locations in Spain where they shot all those really famous Leone um, uh, spaghetti westerns. And so knowing him kind of from a, um, a almost like a, a film uh, professor role, Kind of professorial kind of role of um, turning people on, turning me on, especially uh, to to lesser known spaghetti westerns and and Japanese cinema. I just find him to be uh, um, such a, a a great key holder. You know, one of those people that are, are, hold the gateway to to um, things that you never have experienced before. But as a filmmaker, definitely, I think Repo Man is is the thing that I know him for. Yeah, certainly. I mean, he wrote uh, 10,000 Ways to Die, which back in 2008, which is his book on spaghetti westerns. Right. Since then, he's obviously done a number of other books, not only on both filmmaking, but also on various sort of TV properties. I mean, he did a book on The Prisoner, uh, most recently in 2017. And before that, he did Alex Cox's introduction to film, A Director's Perspective, back yep. in 2016, yep. which... Really, it's kind of like a film school in a book. It's really kind of interesting as he goes through uh, filming techniques, what different parts of the crew do, and he even assigns you like films to go and watch. That's awesome. And uh, including his own films, but those ones you're allowed to skip. <laughs> so it's one of those uh, books that I've. I mean, I've got it on the Kindle at the moment, and I kind of want to work my way through it and just treat it like a film class to see how it's oh, yeah. so it plays out and just like you know go away and watch citizen kane go away and watch the wild bunch and see how it sort of plays if you were to treat it as as i said like a film school in a book and it's kind of interesting because tarantino for years he was like saying oh when i finish with director i'm going to go off and write film books and i'm going to and it basically follow this path that alex Cox has so i think what we're seeing with Alex Cox's crew is basically yeah. the the future path for Tarantino when he finally decides to uh, finally give up. Because, I mean, how many films did Tarantino say? I think he was said he was only going to do ten and then retire, which is which, 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 which would put number. It, which would put him very close to the end. Isn't uh, isn't um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Is that his ninth or his tenth? It's would be his ninth. 
No. So, yeah, um, if he's going to keep to that. But, you know, he's he's reevaluated shit that he's said before. You know, so who knows? <laughs> I think... I mean, at the moment, I mean, Tarantino is sort of like... He's in that, that very sort of envy position of the fact where everyone wants to court him. And right. he can just basically, like... You know, hide away in his mansion, collecting films and old records and stuff, and whenever he feels like uh, exploding back into the conscious, he just like comes back, and it's it's like he's never been away, and then he just disappears again. But I'm just for myself, I'm very glad that he's moved away from the spaghetti western period that he yeah. was in. Yeah. Um, and now we've obviously got him doing his more of his sort of his old history thing again. Um. And part of me would have liked to seen him like do another World War Two picture because I know he was talking about uh, doing a film called Black Crows, which would have been headed up by Samuel Jackson. It would have been a minimal mission uh, style film, but it would have been a black commando right. unit. Gotcha. And that's what I would kind of like to see. I would really hope that he doesn't cast Eli Roth in any more of his films. <laughs> he has a good relationship with him. At least he did at that point. So you know, I, I can understand him showing up in that. But uh, not the biggest fan. <laughs> I'm glad that someone's got a good relationship with Roth because I'm sure the audience really doesn't at this point. <laughs> he doesn't. He's he's got some uh, some trouble, doesn't he, over the past uh, couple movies since um, what was it, uh, Green Inferno? He's had some trouble. Yeah. He stumbled into that same trap that Kevin Smith was in about the time we made Cop Out, where he's trying to take on the critics. Right. And you you can't you can't beat the critics because you're basically saying that people can't have an opinion. Right. Because that's what a critic is. I'm sorry to like demystify what criticism is for people here, but basically criticism is to someone giving their opinion, they're just writing it down or giving it on a podcast. That's the only difference. So Right. I think it's valid that that critics should have a problem with this this kind of pushback because it's it's interesting it's been happening uh, as as of the date that we're recording this on may 5th it's been kind of a prevalent thing over the weekend and, and the previous week i just feel like it, critics um have been uh, attacked a little further um i'm thinking of joe carnahan had kind of a blow up a couple nights ago yeah. um there have been filmmakers really coming uh pretty hard at, at critics and and not realizing that that criticism is a is a necessary art form um of course there are people who abuse it um both the artists and and the people that are uh, criticizing them but you cannot win a, a war or even you know a singular battle by saying you know kind of undercutting someone's opinion or saying that they can't have an opinion or you miss the point of my art by criticizing it it's 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 kind of pointless it's absurd obviously back onto to cox i mean here we have someone who originally was studying to be a lawyer and decided that he didn't want to be a lawyer and went off to study <laughs> film instead yeah. so he went to first off to attend uh the ucla uh film school in los angeles and that was in 1977 and there he's he's making his very surreal sort of shorts um such as city or sleepers for sissies which i don't know if you've if you get the criterion cut of reaper man you can actually see it on there and it's it's kind of a a mess but there's some interesting ideas in there. <laughs> I haven't seen Sleepers for Sissies. I do have the Criterion uh, uh, Repo Man, though. I'll have to check it out. <laughs> um, certainly, if you when you watch Repo Man, you can see where he takes the best ideas for Sleepers for Sissies and puts them into right. Repo Man. I mean, Repo Man itself is a film which 
sort of like was born out of sheer force of will. Right. As basically everything in this, the production was going against it. I mean, he teamed up with Michael Naismith, who, you know, anyone who's got any taste in music will know was a member of the Monkees, the greatest band in the world. Yep. Um, you know, many people say they're imitators of the Beatles, but, you know, <laughs> they, they hands down any day of the week, you can go pound for pound and the Monkees would beat out the Beatles. I mean, what have the Beatles got? You've got... A, you've got McCartney who's okay, you know. <laughs> you've got someone who's trying to buy himself a sainthood to come for that. He's just like a wife beating asshole. <laughs> you've got um, someone who's become enlightened, and you've got a guy who wanted to be the voice of Thomas Tank Engine. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, what with the Beatles? I mean, after Help, it was kind of interesting when you know when they discovered Acid. <laughs> But with the monkeys, straight off the bat, they were great. <laughs> and even like when you look at their films, like when we look at the monkeys' films, so we've got Head and uh, Rotations Per Monkey, both really trippy movies, but both some really interesting <laughs> stuff there. Whereas the Beatles just have what Yellow Submarine, <laughs> which they don't even voice. They turn up at the end because they're contractually obliged to. Right. But like all the films, they actually appear in like Hard Day Night, uh, Magical Mystery Tour, and and. Um, the filming of the White Album, I mean, it's there's nothing really sort of interesting there. So, <laughs> I have to say, so, I'm I'm a monkeys man. You've sold me. You've sold me. You've got me. I'm glad to have. <laughs> yeah. I tell you what, the monkeys TV show is like the best Hangover TV you can get. It's not bad. I remember watching it when I was a kid. <laughs> I, I wonder if I would uh, like it more as a as a very drunk adult. <laughs> as an adult, it's like uh, when you hear that that opening theme music. It's like when you hear the opening. F- chords to battle royale oh yeah it's like oh yeah it's just go time oh yeah but you know in a more gentle sort of easing into the day way <laughs> but uh yeah michael naismith he's while he's obviously known as a lover of woolly hats he's also <laughs> got some investment in sort of independent cinema yep. i mean this wasn't the only film that he invested in he also did tape heads as well he also did time ride the adventure of lynn swan which i don't know if you've seen but it is really kind of random i haven't but that's crazy, oh. man. But yeah, he did the free. But Repo Man, he basically put the money across, and they had a negative deal with Universal Studios, who would only give them money once the film was completed. So all the money was basically being put up by Michael Naismith, who had like putting sort of blind faith in Axe Cox wow. to deliver this film. Wow. And all I mean, all Axe Cox has got to show is like enthusiasm, a decent script, and this short film which is kind of a mess so you really got to give credit to Naismith that he saw something in in this product in this project and I mean the film came out it flopped and it's sort of only through like the, the soundtrack and word of mouth that you know Universal basically gave it a second release and it sort of became this sort of cult classic and I think to its credit that's where the strength of the film lies because if it had come out and been a big success I don't think we would have been talking about it now and it probably wouldn't have have this all this sort of cool credential and it really yep. sort of fits in with the whole sort of punk, punk scene that's represented i mean while cox is here being influenced by the punk scene he was never he was more of an onlooker he was never part of the scene right but he has such he i mean he here he gets together like some of the really some of the coolest guys in the sort of revival scene you've got like the circle jerks you've got um iggy pop does the does the opening track yeah um and dick and i mean and dick rude Dick Rude's a big part of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, Nicky Pop, when this was presented to him, I mean, he was really at a low point, and he basically saw it's like this gift from God. 
that he was offered Reaper Man and he saw it as like his vision, his like sign that he had to go off and get clean. Yeah. Although I did hear that the actual instrumental uh, that we get on the film was actually recorded by the band because he was off wasted somewhere oh. and didn't show up. So they just basically threw together this <laughs> instrumental and that's why. For my money, it sounds better on the sound on the film than it does on the soundtrack. Yeah, um, I don't know about yourself. Yeah, I've I haven't heard it on the the soundtrack by itself, but it sounds much better in the in the movie, I'm sure. Yeah, it's kind of like the same with the uh, opening track of Streets of Fire. That sounds much better in the film than it does yeah. on the 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 actual album version, which is kind of annoying, really, in the fact that if you if you want the good version, you've got to sort of cut and paste it all together yourself. But right, right. Is it well? Is the soundtrack uh, derived from like a, a CD master? Is it is it just poorly um, uh, mastered uh, in the soundtrack form? Uh, no, in the soundtrack form, it's it's just the Iggy Pop recording. Gotcha. Whereas when we in the actual film version, it's we get the I think it's like a two minute instrumental. So it's just basically like the riff. Right, right, right. Um, and you haven't obviously got Iggy's. Uh, vocals there which is and the one that's on the album uh, when i'm listening to them side by side it sounds slower right probably um, probably is but uh yeah the one we obviously played at the start of this episode was the the sound from the actual film cut itself so mm-hmm. if you uh get hold of a couple of the soundtrack which i really urge you all to do if you like punk rock then uh it's definitely one worth checking out so definitely sounds you know for when you like cruising around to <laughs> the commute or whatever so i think that it's interesting too because like of the time period um you know just re-looking at at this movie today re-watching it you know i really feel like it, it is authentic it feels authentically uh, of that of of los angeles and that hardcore punk scene and you know i i haven't had a lot of exposure to um the music then i certainly dabbled when i was you know much younger um in high school and everything but um you know seeing decline of western civilization and a couple other different documentaries um and, and of course you know class of 84 and all these movies that kind of tried to incorporate kind of a punk aesthetic to it um those really came off pretty goofy compared to this this feels even though it's it's not the forefront of the movie the forefront is obviously this kind of sci-fi um almost vignette type comedy um the the punk the music that's in it on the soundtrack and obviously the aesthetic the kind of culture that's around it in this i feel like feels the most um real and authentic compared to whether it is uh return of the living dead or class of 84 or stuff like that one of the be- the strong points of the film is the fact it's not like trying to play up its punk element the fact that you have yeah. punks that are running for the street i mean there's a whole subplot with like otto's <laughs> friends yeah. with like this trio of punks that are just basically going around committing a series of crimes in the city right and right. the fact is that it's not trying to like and this is something I find, especially with like law modern writing, when you have like have like characters going about things being, oh, it's so punk, right. and they're like uh, trying to tap into like that uh, sort of like Sex Pistols, sort of uh, you know snot and fury, sort right. of anger, and it just like never comes off. Whereas here, it as I said, because he's just like taking the scene, he's cre- he's creating many ways his very sort of realistic portrait of LA at the time, and the fact that he the bands that he has have on here i mean as i said circle jerks black flag it's it's really sort of creates this sort of really sort of growling sort of soundtrack that just perfectly matches the film yeah. by yourself i mean i didn't 
of the sort of band, I mean, obviously I listened to Iggy Pop and the Stooges, I listened to Black Flag and I listened to Circle Jerks, but a lot of my stuff was sort of like later stuff. It was sort of like yeah. um, things like No FX and Bad Religion. Right. It was sort of like more the sort of 90s, around the sort of later 80s sort of revival yeah. sort of scene. But yeah, any, I think uh, Black Flag you can never go wrong with. Uh, so it's great to obviously see them on the soundtrack. But the film itself um, is sees... Emilio Estevez, he plays this punk called Otto, who's dumped from his job in working in a convenience store. He's at the same same night. He's also dumped by his girlfriend, and he finds himself unwittingly being drawn into being a repo man by Bud, here played by Harry Dean Stanton, and he finds that you know he's actually quite fine with you know being a repo man. The fact that he has to shed his punk attire and dresses a suit, he's he finds out that you know. The lifestyle kind of suits him because the repo men are probably more punk than the punks in the city because uh, right. they're drinking beer and they're snorting hard drugs and living by their own set of rules. Right. And it's really the sort of real meat of the story comes when a bounty for a 1964 Chevy Malibu comes up and Otto soon discovers that he's not the only one in search of the car and more particularly it's mysteriously glowing cargo in its trunk which right. uh, has the tendency to vaporize whoever looks in the trunk yep in a nice little homage to kiss me deadly so yep yep i, th- I find that so funny i mean like that's you know i think coming from someone who's uh such a fan of film noir like i am I, kiss me deadly is like the first thing i go to but you know i don't think that i saw this movie knowing that i don't think i knew kiss me deadly beforehand and you know you're gonna get a couple different uh uh originators of that of that um uh background people are either going to say kiss me deadly or they're going to say pulp fiction or something like that you're going to have you know people that really grew up on on sci-fi i feel like you know the the especially anything that had some sort of social commentary in the in the 50s um anything that you know from from godzilla to any of those uh monster movies that were about the uh, atomic holocaust or the fear of atomic holocaust um and this is kind of a movie that that both comments on it and uses it as as kind of a jumping off point um those type of uh uh atomic scare movies of the 50s definitely and i mean i wasn't unaware of the sort of kiss me deadly sort of connection it was only because i was watching the magnus prophecy uh breakdown of the film which you can find on youtube his criterion series is really quite fantastic and um it was uh obviously there we highlighted that film because i'd not been a huge noir fan i'd never obviously made that connection and obviously like you said that my mind would more go to like uh put fiction right. as what's in the briefcase and what's in the trunk and it's um i just love the fact that whoever look, whenever you look in there you just turn into a, a glowing <laughs> skeleton and left as a pair of smoking boots which... it is it's a pretty crazy way to start the movie being uh that too because i mean there's that constant through line of of a mystery so even if you have these kind of vignettes and and you know your mileage may vary some people might find that the second half of the movie or like the last third of the movie um is kind of a mishmash of a bunch of things um you still have that kind of driving mystery um that's going across so you know it becomes more and more absurd as the movie goes on um but 
it's it's always this kind of fleeting, uh, uh, can't put your finger on it type mystery that I that I really uh, enjoy. I find it kind of I find it hilarious um, how people react to this thing, this kind of uh, red herring that they're constantly going after, and whenever they they do. Uh, manage to capture it one way or another they'll be put in the situation where they're probably going to get uh fried by that trunk <laughs> whether it's the the cop at the beginning who's uh gonna check the trunk to um archie um the punk uh who who gets it because he's a, a little too uh overzealous and egotistical just stuff like that it's really funny to me i love that that opening sort of sequence though with the the highway cop that yeah. for my, myself is like it's just such a perfect sequence just how it's obviously introduced you've got like the mad scientist character who's got like the one lens in his glasses yeah yeah, yeah. um the one sunglass lens yeah <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> it's just such a and the way that he shoots him you can see that he's watching the cop through the wing mirror you can see that he's watching it and he knows what's going to happen right um and the fact he lets these things happen be it because he's nuts or because it's his way of of continuing on his way because he knows that that cop isn't going to be there for much longer. Right. And throughout the film, as as you said, it towards the I think it's sort of like around that third act that it starts becoming a little too muddled, and I think it didn't help the fact that Cox was like constantly having to cut out subplots because of funding and time restrictions. So I believe it. Yeah. A lot of rather than going back and just like editing more of the film out he just basically left plot threads in so that's where we've got these random militia unit going in we've got the punks going around and sorting their own sort of like uh campaign and i mean the original ending for the film would have seen otto heading to south america with the sherry malibu and use it as a negotiating tool against the american governments is basically as like and using it in the same way that um, a country may threaten another women's atomic right. bomb right which would have been kind of interesting to see but at the same time i kind of love the the abstract there's a random ending we do get yeah um, it's crazy funny it's it's it, it's it's made for a midnight audience too and it's made for being inebriated or on some sort of drug. Because I feel like if you're watching this, this is an hour and a half movie, you start at midnight, come around to one thirty in the morning and you're feeling it. You, that ending is hilarious. It's really, really hilarious. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know whether it's been by the fact that at this point we've seen and experienced so much that... Oh, you know, spoiler alert, the car flying <laughs> off is, um, it's like, oh yeah, that, that makes sense. And I just <laughs> yeah. love the girl, I just love the girl saying, what about us? What about our relationship after all that? And Emilio Estevez is just like, fuck that. I'm going to get in this car and fucking fly off. I, do, I the blind faith though, the fact that anyone else has got near the car has even been fried or right. zapped with electricity, and he's like, "Oh hell yeah, I'll go and get in the car with the guy who can't drive, yet maybe actually turn out to be an alien." Yeah, um, yeah, that that's perfect. That's real logical thinking. <laughs> um, I mean, Emilio Estevez, how did you sort of find his role? Because I really thought that he he was really believable as Pancardo. Oh, I love. Um, Right down to you know he has that tragic earring that thankfully gets <laughs> he gets shot off once he becomes an e a rebo man. Yeah, I love and... it. I, I I love him in this. I I I I'm a 
I, I even from a from a childhood um, stance, like I probably know him. I knew him first probably from Breakfast Club, which was after yeah. this, I believe. Um, but it's funny to to see him, you know, being a fan of of his family. You know, I was a fan of Charlie Sheen. I was a fan of his father too, and and to see Emilio Estevez. He had such a hopeful beginning as as kind of a young actor, and this role is just like so badass at parts. And um, he's 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 legitimately funny in this movie. I think he's um, you know it's a well written character, and I think that he embodies it pretty well because you don't know much about this kid, and this kid is is definitely not a blank slate. He brings that personality to it, um, and 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 seeing you know other stuff that he's done, you can see that Emilio Estevez is is a very talented actor but um auto is very is probably one of those defining roles for him in my opinion when i think of emilio estevez i think of him in this i don't know what it is about emilio estevez i mean obviously he had that boom with the brat pack obviously in the 80s making those i don't i mean i don't i don't personally don't, i can't stand like john hughes movies i certainly can't stand the breakfast club i mean not um, your cup of tea <sighs> I mean, I can shorthand the argument for why I hate the Breakfast Club for you now, and it's the fact is that with the Breakfast Club, it's all we have all these different identities, and at the end, it basically says that you know all your problems can be solved as long as you have a big enough bag bag of weed and you're willing to give up on everything that identifies with you as you. It's like you know, don't be the old bull, put on makeup, and then the jock's going to want to fuck you. <laughs> um, it's sort of like that's one way. It's sort of like. It's sort of like everyone. If you all just conform, then you're going to be fine. Don't bother standing out. Don't try and be <laughs> it is a, go against the crowd. It is a positive uh, Reagan America type um, uh, moral to it. It is a a um, uh, melting pot instead of a salad bowl. Don't you know? Lo- lo- lose your your identity and become part of the masses. I think that that's another thing that you know this movie has going for it i mean it's the string of movies this and they live and a couple other movies that are so uh even alex cox movies uh walker is a, a very similar movie um in terms of the politics but um they live and repo man these are movies that are very super aware of the time time period that they're being made um the uh country that they take place in reagan's america in the 80s um so not only is the hardcore punk scene the attitude of it the aesthetic of it so um much commenting on reagan's america but i mean go the what the reason i relate it to like they live with the conformist attitude i mean you even have a non-conformist um mentality from cox you know not wanting to do any product placement all the products in these movies are just called beer they're you know there's no brand names there's nothing you know any foods that you eat or you can just have a can of f-o-o-d there is no, no you don't know what's in that can just food um it's shit like that that is so hyper aware of its uh of its era that it's in oh definitely the the fact that, that nothing has labels on it just amused me greatly cool. and the fact that as the film goes on, you can see this sort of like uh, conformity, like creeping yeah. into the outskirts of the city. Because whereas before, like in like the uh, gas station stuff, that you see food and that which has got labels. Towards the end of the film, it's all been replaced with this white label. Right. And w- with his co-worker who's there singing like the Seven Up jingle at the right, start, right. Um, 
Although I have to wonder how dangerous this boss thinks he was because he he turns up with an armed security guard I, to fire I him. I know, I know. And it makes even less sense because Otto is like he's he's not so much punk in like the traditional sense. I mean, he obviously dresses punk, but he's more just sort of an angry young man because. You see him when he's going to have sex with his girlfriend. He's like, oh, wait a minute. I'm just going to go and fold my trousers. Right, and... Right. <laughs> and the fact that she, he wait, his girlfriend waits for him to go out of the room and then is wastes no time in like shacking up with his friend. It's like, oh, right. God. Well, that's the kind of enigma of it, too, you know, from his point of view as a character. Because, I mean, um, I guess you could read it a couple different ways. But, you know, at the end of the day, it feels like his conformity is the thing that kind of defines him you know his conformity to um wanting to get paid you know just to just to get uh, a job to get paid i mean it's not like he has some sort of real rebellious attitude you see it seems the beginning that he does but um you know the journey that he goes on is uh is as punk as a repo man can be and like you said earlier i mean like uh, they're more punk than the punks in the movie and and really just their uh their day to day is so uh dangerous it's so otherworldly to probably what was um considered quote-unquote normal at the time you know watching a movie like this in 1984 uh reagan's america i feel like the it's it's letting you in to a, a window of a job and also of a um a time uh, a place a time and a place that you're just not aware of whether it is you're not aware of the punk scene or you're not aware of repo men just guys basically doing speed and uh and repossessing cars it's just an otherworldly uh occupation and and life than uh i i guess most american uh people would be yeah and i i mean it does his his whole character's journey i mean obviously he starts off in the punk garb and he, he gets his suit and it's interesting because when we look at bud who's obviously his mentor in many yeah. ways the fact that bud's journey he basically devolves into what otto was to begin with by the end of the film and the fact that he loses sort of faith in his his profession and i really like the fact that Cox introduces with each of the Reaper men, he introduces their own like code of honor. Like right. <clears throat> with Bud, he won't damage the car, he won't use guns, he won't do a lot of things that the other the, we see. Like, uh, I think it's I'm trying to remember which uh, one of the other Reaper men, he's like completely opposite here, break into cars here, use guns. I mean, I think it's I think it's Cy si, si Richardson, off. is that his name? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, as light. Yeah. Yes, it will be because all the Reaper men, whereas all the products might not have branding, all the Reaper men are named after yeah, beers. Yes, they do. Yes, they are. <laughs> Just with with the, the the character's journey, there. I mean, is there any sort of particular like plot thread that you you sort of like enjoyed following? I mean, I do like the constant little vignettes of him, you know, learning the job early on, and and yeah, seeing those differences between 
Cy Richardson's character and Harry Dean Stanton. Like you said, Harry Dean Stanton has a uh, has this uh, code, and to see the other one, seeing Cy Richardson, who, who's willing to uh, break into hot wire a car to to get it, um, basically uh, throws everything, uh, all possessions that are in the car out, including just uh, gift boxes full of money. So it was probably like a, a drug dealer's car. <laughs> Um, and, and, and no less shooting at a, a person that they were repossessing their car of just shooting at them with, with, uh, blanks. It, it's just, it's so, it's so crazy. The, the extremes that he has to go through. Um, it's just, and, and they're all colorful characters too. It's not just Harry Dean Stanton and Cy Richardson that make up that, that, um, that world it's the other people that work there at the repo office they're all just they're crackpots they're all weirdos in their own way with this colorful world i mean it's not just repo men it's not just sort of otto's friends you've got like a religious sect who's uh we find out otto's parents have basically donated all his traveling money to uh because that's gone on to like fund a church in ethiopia or wherever wherever that's gone right. to and we find out later that the church are just as corrupt as everyone else because they're they're trying to get hold of the Chevy Malibu for the bounty but they're saying that it belonged to an old lady who had a car stolen and they're just trying to get it back for her right right so <laughs> and then obviously we've got the we've got the, the these punks who just just every time they do like a stick up and they've got like these ridiculous disguises it just uh, it, it just amused me every time I saw him. In. I, I love the fact that when we get to the end as well, that when Otto gets beaten up and but you can see this like change in Bud's character. The fact that he like uh, rounds up the other repo men to go and beat up um, the guy that uh, Otto say he was jumped by, which turns out to be Otto's old right, boss. Right, 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 right. Um, and I love the fact if you look in the background, you can see. Um, you can see Kevin, he, the guy he used to work with, who turns out to be uh, his boss's son. He's they're still singing the Seven Up jingle in the background. <laughs> it's so interesting with that kid because uh, Kevin doesn't seem—he seems like he's just going to be a minor character, right? But he ends up being this yeah. kind of through-line character that keeps showing up. And I—I I mean, you don't even realize that he's kind of like his hangers-on. He's kind of like his little his little friend outside of work. Um, that seems like a poser almost, like a poser within that little punk punk group that they go hang out with, which includes that kind of, like Archie, Duke, and Debbie, that those three that start robbing places and, and committing crimes. But it's it's so interesting to see Kevin just pop up at little times because he's he just seems so out of place. Uh, and and it's so funny, you know, we were talking earlier about Dick Root, right? So Dick Root who who's mm. so much a a punk staple i think he's a filmmaker and and kind of part of a, a punk scene um he's that authentic part that was kind of like friends with alex cox i think probably after this they became friends but um dick rude and kind of uh um the girl who plays debbie they have this kind of weird like romance going on 
um, even before they go to like store robberies and stuff like that. And and when he's dying, I mean, we were already talking about spoilers, but when like Duke is shot and he's yeah. dying in that store, he has like such you know such a Shakespearean ending where he's you know blaming society for the kind of person that he is, and all that stuff is just like it's so it's so humorous. It's just like these little uh, sketches of characters that you don't expect. They can easily be one note, but they have like these little moments of of just like hilarity, just little vignettes that you can have. And and you know the other thing that I I love is Miguel Sandoval, who a lot of people might know more from like uh, Clear and Present Danger and uh, Get Shorty. He's he's played a lot of like uh, crime bosses and and FBI agents. He's he seems like a very square dude um, nowadays. Um, but Miguel Sandoval plays that that um, mohawk wearing punk Archie in this, and he is so funny. He's got kind of like a surfer dude um, accent. I love him in this. Yeah, I mean, Dick Rude originally was going to play Otto, mm-hmm. and um, it's only because um, Emilio right. Estevez like, came into uh, Alex Cook's attention, so he swapped him over. So at least he gets a decent yeah. ending. Yeah, he has a great... He gets that, as you said, that Shakespearean ending. It's so, it's so funny. But yeah, I could, I could see him as Otto. Um, I understand that they would probably need Emilio Estevez to, to make um, the movie, to get the funding. But um, if, if, if this movie was made truly without names like if god forbid if if they weren't able to get a a harry dean stanton if they made this purely independent and he was in it he might have become his own little you know he might have had a cult stardom um and that would have been interesting to see dick rude to be in more of these movies um throughout the 80s these these anti uh almost anti reagan era uh punk movies Everything about this film is not trying to be a cult movie. And I think this is something that a lot of directors now, especially those who are trying to push the sort of Neo Grindhouse wave, yeah. um, can really sort of learn a lesson from is the fact that Alex Cross set out to not make a cult movie. He just tried to set out to make the best film he right. could. And I think that's sort of like the key the key thing that we see time and time again when we look at especially all those sort of like cult classic movie the cults of midnight movies like a razor head um how do they come um pink flamingos and uh rocky yeah. horror it's, it's not people sitting out to make a cult right. movie it a cult movie is found by its audience and i think that's what's so great about reaper man it's just what it is it's the film that cox was able to make and it's just I mean, I, I before we came to record this, I mean, the, I only just sort of recently watched it, and I I rented it um, through Amazon, mm-hmm. and it was such an old school rental experience I had with this movie is that I rented it, and it's sort of like, okay, you got forty eight hours, and I watched it four times in forty eight hours. Well. It was sort of like I just like just watched it again and again, and it's like it was as I said, it took me back to like when you're a kid and you get that tape from the video store, and it's like that's your film yeah. for the weekend or whatever and it's you just like try to cram in as many viewers as you can to get your money's worth I love so, it. but um, you're right i think that that's true because a lot of the movies that are are commenting or trying to to not parody but like try to get to the aesthetic of cult movie they always seem to try too hard with it and these movies from the from the 80s and the early 90s that we find to be you know these cult movies these midnight movies they were just trying to make the best movie that they could and they just had an alternative alternative to the mainstream type 
type POV about them. And movies like this with Reva Man and, and, um, uh, like you mentioned, those other movies, they all have this, uh, mentality of wanting to do the best film. And, and it being his debut film, uh, honestly, I mean, you look at any filmmaker that we really respect, um, like Sam Raimi or any of these directors who made movies early on and, and we go back and look at their movies, these, these cult and midnight movies. Um, they are all so much, they're raw, you know, they're not perfectly made. Repo Man is not perfectly made. It's got a lot of flaws to it, but that's part of its charm. Part of its, its appeal is that it is as raw as its characters. It's as raw as its soundtrack. And that's stuff that I really like about it. Cool. Um, now as we, uh, come to the end of this episode, uh, just sort of like, Further viewing, uh, what do you sort of pair with? I think we've touched on a lot of like the key ones as we've been going across. I mean, certainly we've talked already about the yeah. live, which would be the one sort of one. If I was going to do a double feature, that would be what I would that pair one. it with. Um, and certainly as a a director, I think I'm sort of very keen to see what else I've been missing out in the Alex Cox's filmography. So I'm kind. Of, my next sort of move, I mean, obviously, I've still got to see Sid and Nancy. Um, I really also want to see Highway Patrolman. Yep, me too, actually. Uh, yeah, I haven't made, seen that. Which he made in his Mexican period, which was between 1988 to 1996. Um, and if you're in the UK, you can actually watch that for the BFI player, um, complete with introduction from Mark Kermode. That's all. So, um, I don't know what you guys in the states can do. I, I know, I know it's coming out. <laughs> Get I, I, yeah, I know it's coming out soon. Is it on Eureka or Arrow? Is it one of those uh, labels is putting it out. Um, I, I want to say like, yeah, they live was going to be my recommendation. Um, if you want to go crazy and pair it with something else, um, Alex Cox did. Like you said, his Mexican period, but he did, you know, another very political movie um, called Walker with um, Ed Harris in it. And I think that's it's it's really interesting. It has a lot of the same Mexican actors that he's worked with um, in that movie. Um, and, and it's very um, it's very much a comment on Nicaragua and the Contra um, uh, affair that was happening in the late 80s. So there's a lot of uh, bleed over with the politics that you see in a lot of his 80s movies. I mean, sex and uh, sex. Um, Sid and Nancy is very much a a its own thing compared to those other three movies or or something like uh, uh, Straight to Hell. I think that those are more Alex Cox movies politically and 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 stylistically. Sid Nancy is him, you know, trying to apply his Alex Coxism on something that's that's, you know, probably one of his if not his most mainstream movie. And um it's him, you know, kind of pulling back a little bit of his style to to make a a biopic. So um, yeah, I would definitely say Walker would be one of those movies that I would pair with this. Um, I only saw it once, but it really kind of, it's such a weird little, little gem of a movie from the late 80s. As this brings us to the end of uh, this episode. Thank you, as always, for listening, and thank you, Greg, for coming on and joining me. Um, I would say if they have been to promote at the moment, but obviously uh, out being like a... <laughs> going for hire at the minute so. i am i'm doing my writing thing and trying to find new things but uh people can find me on twitter uh mr greggles m-i-s-t-e-r-g-r-e-g-g-l-e-s i'm on there uh fairly fairly uh 
often. Yeah, and they can also check out the obviously the debatable yep. archive, which is still up at the moment. So I definitely urge everyone to check it out. Some really great stuff on there. I was listening to your episode with one of the guys, with Will Smith from uh, Gentleman's oh, Guide yeah. to Midnight Cinema yeah. this afternoon. So that's a really Thanks. great episode if you're looking for a stepping in point. That's one of the that's one of my favorite episodes too. I love I love the guys at the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. They're great guys. Well, thank you, Greg, and. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for listening. And then I guess there's nothing else for it to say, but you know, let's go get sushi and not pay. <laughs>